When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today. Ukraine claims to have shot down a £274 million Russian spy plane. Volodymyr Zelensky heads to Switzerland and the World Economic Forum in Davos to make his case to world leaders. And we discuss Ukrainian resistance in the occupied territories. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 15th of January. One year and 325 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and former tank commander and Telegraph contributor Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. So the breaking-ish news, it came out a couple of hours ago, but details are a bit scant. Reports are, and it's backed up by General Zeluzny's comments, Ukraine has shot down at least one plane, to Russian planes. Two seem to have come down. Whether one was, whether both were by Ukrainian fire, one by Russian fire, we're not known. But what we think has happened is that a Soviet-era A-50 aircraft, 274 million quid of aircraft, shot down over the Sea of Azov on Sunday night. This is coming out from the RBC Ukraine news agency. They cited a source in Ukraine's armed forces. Now, you may remember these planes. An A-50 was one that was based in Belarus, was blown up in that partisan drone attack February last year. We saw the drone footage landing on the wing and then and then blowing up the aircraft. These, these aircraft are basically military air traffic control in the sky. They do a few other bits and bobs, but essentially an area where you, where there's either, there is no air traffic control or the military want to have their own, which is in any operational environment. You put one of these things in, NATO's got the same type of stuff, and it establishes that command and control functionality. So they use radar to detect missiles, aircraft. They can be used as an airborne command centre. They can vector in their own fighters onto enemy planes and so on and so forth. So you get a picture, a, um, a realistic 
picture of, of what's happening. Recognised air picture, I think is the terminology. It used to be. So a briefing from the UK's MOD on February 23rd last year, you may remember, said that Russia likely had six operational A-50s. So that was six back then. So let's say five now. They're not all going to be serviceable at any one time. So you probably think three out of that. So this is significant. I mean, these are signature pieces of kit. I hate the word kit, but there you go. Um, signature aircraft where numbers... The numbers game does really matter. So if they've only got, if they've only had six and they got five, I mean that really is. Don't think, oh well, they still got they still got five up their sleeve. I mean th- this is very very significant. Now we don't know about how it was shot down, the, the issues around that, the circumstances, the weapons used, and so on and so forth. But it seems as if that is the more realistic or the more we're firmer with those. Uh, those suggestions then on this other one so separately it's been reported that an Aleutian aircraft an IL-22M another big fairly old but big command and control aircraft hit and damaged possibly requiring a, an emergency landing which might might you might see reports saying another one another aircraft shot down we don't know if that one we think the we think the A-50 was all catastrophically brought down not so sure about the Aleutian but possibly even if it's been damage that's still significant again these are signature pieces of equipment that was operating over the hairzon region and the the um the engagement happened we're told about 9 p.m last night now the Aleutian, the il-22m we think part of again a relatively small fleet of around 12 aircraft um and it's been reported that uh, sorry it is heavily utilized for airborne command and control radio relays that kind of thing so a radio relay means if you're when you're transmitting on a radio and it, and it and it's got a range let's say of of 10k's you need relay links to then push it out to 40 50 and and beyond so this thing up in the air where there's little clutter to get in the way of a, of a radio signal it can then bounce that signal further on so that's it's more used for that than the actual kind of what the A50 was used for the airborne command and control but yeah so fairly old but still still a very a very important piece of airborne equipment you may remember one was shot down by the wagner group on their march north moscow last year so if they had about 12 they might be down to down to 10 as i say they're not all going to be serviceable at the same time they won't all have crews for all of them so you can imagine probably six or seven available at any one time so yes numbers do matter General Volodymyr Zelensky, who's obviously Ukraine's commander-in-chief, he said the Air Force of Ukraine destroyed an enemy A-50 long-range radar detection aircraft and an enemy IL-22 air control centre. I am grateful to the Air Force for the perfectly planned and executed operation in the Azov Sea region. Glory to Ukraine. So more on that as we will get it. But they seem to be the nuts and bolts, two very significant pieces of air capability have been degraded slash possibly destroyed and this is what i mean as as i've said many many times when people say oh the war's the war's stalemate it's not not doing anything stop just looking at the land campaign look at what's happening in the sea look what's happening in the sky this is all about degrading russia's capability as russia's trying to do to ukraine so war you might say oh well they've they've lost a thousand troops but there's there's plenty more when you're down into the sixes and sevens or the tens elevens twelves of these types of aircraft then it really does matter that these things are are being knocked out okay uh, enough on that one for now more no doubt in the next few days so also yesterday sunday ukrainian partisans reportedly killed four russian soldiers in occupied melitopol troops were supposedly uh, we think they were blown up as they they're traveling through the city center this is coming from ukraine's military intelligence department 
Then on to today, and a salvo of what's been described as three Ukrainian missiles was shot down over Russia's southwestern Kursk region this morning. That came from Russia's defence ministry. They said the Choshka U rockets were down by air defences in the early hours. They didn't give any further information about damage or casualties. Now, you may remember last week we spoke about or was mentioned about Russian recruitment figures and how they were able to replenish. And the comment was this came a lot of reporting came from ISW, but there was a, the Institute for the Study of War. But there's other comment on it as well, suggesting that Russia was was reasonably able to do local replenishment so take small amounts of troops out of the line for rest recuperation and replace them with with fresher troops not necessarily fresh troops but fresher troops but they're not able to do anything at scale so not able to regenerate their army and push west and north and so on and so forth today's british mod uh, defense intelligence update has dismissed russian army recruitment figures as what they're saying is substantially inflated so in the latest defense intelligence briefing Britain's MOD said claims by Dmitry Medvedev, the occasionally sober former Russian prime minister. Sorry, these are my words, not the MOD's. And the current deputy chair of its Security Council were highly likely to be exaggerated. They say in its efforts to meet recruitment targets, the Russian military has since April 2023 allowed school leavers to sign contracts with the Russian army. Recent data published by MediaZona and the BBC Russian service suggests that at least five Russians born in 2005 have died in the conflict. It is highly likely that Russian military recruitment to sustain the war has disproportionately drawn from impoverished and rural regional communities of Russia. So when they say they've got thousands of people, yes, as we always say, just look at the quality and the, the training available to those people. That's before you get onto the leadership and the equipment and so on and so forth couple more from me. Now, not a lot of moves, still incredibly violent along the front line, but not a lot of movement in the line. Let's uh, look at uh, Avdivka in the east. And governor, the Ukrainian governor there, Vadim Filashkin, has been speaking to Radio Svoboda earlier today. He said that Russia has dropped 250 aerial bombs on Avdivka in the first two weeks of the year which is a, is a high rate given for the, uh, for the recent experience. He said out of a, out of a pre-full-scale invasion population of 31,000, just over 1,000 remain today. So the lines aren't shifting much in Avdivka, but it's still incredibly violent. It is worth looking at comments from Phillips O'Brien, I think, here, Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St Andrews. In his, he, tweet, he puts out a lot on Twitter. He's got a sub-stack and he, and he puts out emails, newsletters as well, worth, well worth following him. He says that the reporting, we've got to just bear in mind the reporting about Divka and the war in general. He said the Russian campaign against Avdivka can be portrayed as a relentless Russian effort, which will soon bring success, while the Ukrainian counteroffensive of approximately same, the same length is now universally seen as a failure. He says it's really baffling. He said the Russians have had massive losses, haven't taken Avdivka, yet the thrust of the reporting narrative is that they are having success and are relentlessly on the march. He goes on, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which secured more territory than the Russians will take even if they seize Avdivka, is, however, seen as a failure. The Russians have suffered much higher losses, assaulting a much smaller area for the same amount of time. And this is somehow shown as a sign that they're on the ascendant. So a cautionary note there from Phillips O'Brien about, about how to receive the information. He also says that a lot of the information from Avdivka comes from first-person accounts from 
guess what, Ukrainian soldiers, because we just don't have access to Russian troops. And they are, as anyone who's been in, around or near combat will tell you, it's, it's extremely brutalising and traumatising. And, and interviewing people in the, in the the space after that, you're going to get some pretty florid and downbeat language, I would suggest. Now, I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm just saying, as O'Brien is echoing, you know, you've got to think about how the information is generated and put it in comparison with what do we know from the other side. And we're not getting an awful lot. It's very difficult to get accurate figures and testimony from either side, but especially from Russia. And just finally for me, the aftermath of British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's visit last week, Russia has fired 40 missiles and drones on Ukraine or at Ukraine on Friday, just hours after Rishi Sunak had been in Kyiv. You remember he signed that bilateral defence agreement with Vladimir Zelensky. Ukraine's air force said that three of six Kinzhal hypersonic ballistic missiles fired by Russian jets had been shot down. Other missiles and drones had also been destroyed. They said more than 20 of the attack weapons were shot down. They did not reach their objectives because of our active electronic warfare counteraction. Now, Ukrainian media reported that one Russian cruise missile fired from bombers over the Caspian Sea had hit the town of Shostka in the northern Sumy region, damaging apartments, injuring people up there. No reports of deaths, but there were also reports of explosions around Kyiv, Chernihiv and Herzon. The Rybar military blogging telegram channel, which is closely linked to Russian authorities, although not not altogether, not always totally off the mark, we think, said this Ukrainian, sorry, this attack on Ukraine was massive, their words. So I've done a little bit of research. So if Rishi Sunak, um, Rishi Sunak was greeted, or his visit was greeted with 40 missile and drones in the uh, recent past, you'd have Ursula von der Leyen, when she visited in May last year, her visit was met with 15 cruise missiles and that delegation of African leaders, including Cyril Ramaphosa from South Africa, a bit of a pal of Russia at the moment. In June last year, there were six Kinzhal, six calibre and two drones fired then. So it's not unusual for this for this sort of pattern of behaviour. You get external leaders visiting and, and showing support for or, or uh, lending, lending their gravitas to Ukraine and then... Russia fires a load of missiles because that's what they like doing and that's what all they're able to do. I'm going to talk a little bit later, probably in my final thoughts. I was, this morning I was in a, I was with Grant Shapps, the Defence Secretary, along with a load of other people. He gave a speech. He didn't say an awful lot in the speech, to be perfectly honest, but a couple of interesting points in the Q&A that I will, I will pick up on later when I asked him about Estonia's recent plan for supporting Ukraine. But I'll talk about that a little bit later, David. Bit of a tease. Absolutely. Thank you very much for all of that, Tom. And um, when you mentioned there the last time in, in last June when Russia fired a load of drones and missiles at, at Kiev, I was, of course, on the road to Kiev at that point, earnestly checking our phone to try and work out what was happening and when it would be safe to go into the city. So, yes, I remember that quite well. Francis Turner, can I come to you? Thanks, David. Well, Dom and I were discussing Grant Shapps' speech before we went on air. And as ever with political speeches, what they don't say is usually as or more interesting than what they do. His notion that Dom's going to talk about later, that Britain is on a pre-war footing, specifically the act of preparing for the worst case scenario in an attempt to prevent the worst case scenario, is interesting. But I found, and again, Dom's going to talk about this later, his apparent lack of engagement with the subject of what it would mean if America were to reduce its military support to Europe or even withdraw from NATO 
rather concerning, frankly. I used to work in politics, so I obviously understand the argument that one does not want to upset one's biggest ally by talking about vulnerabilities when it's a different administration. But at the same time, this is so fundamental to European security. I cannot help but think it's too important not to be discussed at a major speech by Defence Secretary. But as I say, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Now, the biggest event of the weekend, I would argue, was the election result in Taiwan, which I'll turn to in a moment. But first, focusing specifically on Ukraine, this week is the annual Davos Summit by the World Economic Forum. Lots of the big Western players are there, including President Zelensky today. He's really got around the last few weeks, I think it's fair to say. His diary is almost as busy as yours, David. I mean, he's been travelling to Argentina, of course. Now he's done his Baltic Grand Tour. It's quite extraordinary when one compares it to when he remained solely in Ukraine for months after the invasion. Of course, it speaks to the urgency of the alliance and him trying to persuade key alliance members to further its support to Ukraine at a key moment. Now, Andrei Yermak, one of Zelensky's advisers, of course, has said off the bat that the Ukrainian government will not accept a freezing of the war with Russia. This president and this team of his will never agree and will not accept any freezing of the conflict, he said at the beginning of the summit. This is unacceptable to Ukrainian society. Ukraine does not need frozen conflicts. Ukraine needs a just peace. Now, obviously, this, I think, should be seen as a preemptive move to try and stop any talk about a ceasefire or negotiations among its allies at Davos. Kyiv is doubling down on its peace plan with representatives from 83 countries meeting to discuss the implementation of Ukraine's peace formula, which, of course, calls for the withdrawal of Russian troops and the restoration of Ukraine's state borders. Yermak also met with the Romanian state secretary to discuss bilateral security guarantees. Interesting this, making Romania the ninth country, I think it will be, to begin bilateral security negotiations with Ukraine. As I discussed last week, to me, one of the open questions of the war is what strength of security guarantees might be acceptable to Kyiv and its allies, which are still robust enough to deter a future Russian state from ever invading Ukraine again. Now, for some, only Article 5 under NATO can provide those guarantees. But given Ukrainian NATO membership feels unlikely in the short term, it does seem sensible and indeed a priority for discussions to be broadened out about security guarantees. One could tell the Kremlin is a bit jumpy, as our old friend Dmitry Pesky Peskov has said the whole summit will be fruitless in his view because Russia is not involved. This is simply talking for the sake of talking, he said. This process cannot be aimed at achieving any specific results for the obvious reason. We are not participating. Without our participation, any discussions are devoid of any prospect of any results. Now, That's simply untrue. As I've just been saying, it's an opportunity for Ukraine and its allies to discuss next steps and to build future partnerships. So it's always interesting seeing what things the Kremlin chooses to remark on, because usually it is significant, regardless of what they say. Now, before we look at Taiwan, moving away from Kyiv's allies to Moscow's. Now, North Korea's foreign minister is in Moscow today as ties between the two countries continue to deepen. Peskov also said North Korea is our closest neighbour and partner with whom we are developing and intend to further develop partnerships in all areas. 
Now, we've seen in recent weeks the utilisation of those missiles Moscow bought from North Korea back in September when we were in the US. Though there have been questions about those weapons reliability, there's also been speculation that Pyongyang may be using the war to test its own missile technology, the more innovative rather the antiquated ones. If so, that would prove the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's warning on Friday during his visit to Kiev correct, namely that Putin's allies, such as Iran and North Korea, have been emboldened by this war and will continue to be so the longer that it is allowed to go on. It'll be interesting to see if there are any public announcements that come off the back of this meeting with North Korea today, though I expect it will be the usual platitudes about forging closer ties whilst the details are fleshed out behind closed doors, just as is the case with China. Which brings us neatly onto what could be, depending on what happens over the coming weeks and months, the second most important election of 2024 behind the American presidential one, namely that which took place over the weekend in Taiwan. So William Leiching T made history on Saturday by securing a third term in the presidency for a party for the first time in Taiwan's democratic era. Whilst achieving a little over 40% of the vote for his Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, It was a decent performance and it does fall short of the two majorities achieved under his predecessor, the outgoing president. But nonetheless, many people are seeing this as symbolic of the democratic and hostile path towards China, at least in terms of China's view of Taiwan, um, that we have than some expected. Now, Another win for this party is significant as that party is China's foe, as I say, on the island, the one which is most critical of Beijing and repudiates the idea that Taiwan is a part of China. This vote could be a signal for China in the same way that Zelensky's election was for Russia. We could see the brewing tensions between Taipei and Beijing erupt into a more overt hostility, potentially, perhaps even violence, as occurred between Kyiv and Moscow when it became clear to the latter that time was running out to keep Ukraine within its orbit. But more optimistically, some would say that this marks a considerable success in the broader battle of ideas between democracy and autocracy worldwide. For some time, Beijing sought to use political threats and manipulation to impose its will on Taiwan. A victory for, in a sense, the status quo here has, for some, exposed the degree of Xi Jinping's failure in that. And depending on the robustness of the West and the developments that take place, the movements by China, it will be interesting to see what happens and potentially fundamental for future defence interests in the West. We don't yet know China's short-term strategy for the island, but that election will play a pivotal role in that it could influence defence discussions globally. And for more on that, I recommend checking out the most recent episode of our sister podcast, Battle Lines, which, of course, now covers other defence topics beyond Israel and Gaza, as well as its next bonus episode later this week, which will feature analysis and discussion of the result with The Telegraph's Asia correspondent Nicola Smith and, of course, our senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan, both of whom will be familiar to listeners of Ukraine The Latest. So a lot going on, David, a really big political week. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that, Francis. We'll, of course, keep an eye on what happens in 
Davos. And thank you very much for that plug for Battle Lines. Just so listeners know, I'll be speaking to Sophia and Nicola tomorrow. I think it's actually quite difficult to find a time as, of course, Nicola is based in Seoul. So the earlier the better for her. I think I think we're talking at 7pm her time, 10am GMT. So that episode of Battle Lines on the Taiwanese election, what happened, what does it mean, how did China react with Sophia and Nicola will be out probably by the end of tomorrow. So do listen to that. And thank you very much again, Francis, for, for giving a bit of a shout out there. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. Could I just start, can we go back to the story that Dom led on here, this apparent shooting down of the A-50 intelligence gatherings, command and control in the sky, Soviet era plane that Ukraine has claimed this morning. Could I ask you just for, more, well, first of all, for your reaction in general to that, but then second of all, what does that mean for the troops on the ground? What capabilities do they lose? And what would your reaction be if a similar thing had happened to, to a, an equivalent asset in the British army? Yeah, I think this is a really significant piece. I mean, this is a key, absolutely key high value asset that the Russians have lost here. Now, usually these aircraft operate outside of the sort of envelope of the sort of weaponry that can take them down. And I'm sure Dom explained that, you know, in the UK, we have AWACS aircraft that do this sort of capability that are, are highly protected. Not only these incredibly expensive and complex uh, aircraft. They've got a lot of very experienced and would have a lot of very, very experienced and well-trained people on them who are absolutely critical to the land battle. You, because one thing is communications. Communications on the land are quite difficult for a whole host of technical reasons way beyond me. But a lot of it is bounced via these sort of aircraft rather than having to go via satellites as well. So that is key. They're also, as it's termed, an airborne command and control system in order to be able to key up all the other assets that you might want to use, aircraft and other things. So it is, we understand that this is one of very few of these aircraft that they have. They will be critical, I suppose not quite so critical at the moment with everything being fairly static, but they are the sort of eyes and ears of the troops on the ground. And if you cut that off, you're losing a, a very important part of your capability. But I think in uh, the fact that the Ukrainians have managed to do this, when all we've heard hitherto that these aircraft are operating beyond the potential attack or damage by the Ukrainians is very, very significant. And it it will affect things. I think we're going to talk about at the minute the possible sort of Russian offensive in the winter. Losing a key asset like this will certainly be a a factor in the decision-making for future operations. So I say certainly in the short term, but, you know, these are not aircraft that you can easily replace, and uh, the Russians ain't got that many others of them. Hamish, just more on this. How do you see the downing of this aircraft, if that's what's happened, and we, we, I think we believe it is what's happened, to fit in with the broader Ukrainian strategy. I mean, Dom mentioned earlier, and I think it's a, it's a good point, that this is the sort of the steady drip-drip of attrition. You're losing lots of men every day. Now, as you just said, this incredibly high-value piece of tech that won't be, you know, you can't just replace it like for like instantly. It's going to take years to get another one. How do you see this fitting, in the bro- it fitting into the broader Ukrainian strategy over, that we've seen over the past few months and maybe heading into 2024? Well, I think it's probably pretty key to that. The the deep battle that we we speak about frequently, the operating behind enemy lines, which again, Ukrainians have been very, very successful at. And I think when one looks at two key elements, the maritime superiority, which the Ukrainians have managed to wrestle 
out of the Russian hands. So Ukraine pretty much has maritime superiority in the Black Sea, and that could be really significant in any offensive, particularly when they want to get behind the lines. But I think the downing of this aircraft, when you also consider that the F-16s are on the horizon, in order for Ukraine, I think, to make grounds in future, not only do they need maritime superiority, but they need air superiority. Now, if they gain air superiority by, number one, knocking out the key command and control assets that, that Russia has, and then secondly, have a significant number of F-16s that can keep, well, maybe not destroy all the Russian fighters and bombers, but keep them on the ground, you then have two of the three key elements you need for success. And by having air superiority and maritime superiority, I think it gives the op- the opportunity for Ukraine land forces to gain the upper hand. So I hope, and I'm sure it is part of a, a very detailed strategic plan on behalf of Ukraine, and it looks like another a, another tick. You know, it's not, this isn't the, the first swallow of the summer sort of thing, but it's certainly going in the right direction to get air superiority with maritime to allow freedom of manoeuvre for the troops of the ground. Thank you so much, Hamish. Let's move then to the piece you wrote last week, which, having read it, it's a bit of a sort of, I would say, a bit of a clarion call for action. Um, you, you seem fairly clear-eyed about where you think this could be heading. Let me just quote you very quickly. Russia is moving to a total war footing, with its government spending and economy increasingly dictated by the needs of the war machine. The contrast between East and West could not be clearer. Russia is focused, and we are not. What are you trying to get at there? What kind of conclusions do you think that everybody who listens to this podcast, policymakers, civilians, etc., wh- wh- how would you sketch out your vision of 2024? Where do you think we're going? Well, I, I think also allied to, to, to the piece I wrote slightly later about the, the Russian offensive. So, and if you take that as a given, then this brings it into much tighter and closer focus. And just the, the Russian offensive, which the Institute for War, again, today is saying it looks like the Russians are trying to plan some sort of offensive in the winter. And our eyes highlighted the fact that the ultra-right nationalists in Russia have been calling on Putin over the last few days to really get moving on this. And I said, well, it, Putin's got an election coming up in March. I mean, slightly tongue-in-cheek, the fact that he sent Alexei Navalny, the only opposition leader, up to the Arctic is one thing. But the people who, the only people who could potentially derail or certainly cause them a headache are these ultra-right nationalists demanding uh, an offensive. And certainly all the Russian bloggers are talking about that. So we then turn back to what I'm trying to say in this other piece. Are we really, do we really understand and realise what's going on here. I know you're going to talk about Grant Chaps's talk this morning and the sort of call to arms there. It, it is allied to the fact we, if Ukraine does not prevail, you know, this spring or summer, and if the Russians do, and I don't know if you discussed before the leaked German Ministry of Defence document over the weekend suggesting a scenario that if the Russians do prevail in Ukraine, then then we're going to be at war in Europe. Now, that is the sort of extreme to that. But in order to make sure that doesn't happen, NATO and the UK needs to show a, a determined and and physically solid front to be able to prevent that. And 
Grant Chaps announced 20,000 so 20,000 British military to steadfast defender this summer, um, which is an incredibly large commitment. When you, most of these people will be soldiers, as in army people. And when you think the British army is only about 70,000 strong today, deploying 20,000 of them, it's very significant. But it is whether we have all the rest of the hardware and the software to go to it. And as we've discussed many times on the pod this year, Politicians are focused on their own elections, and one just hopes that politicians in this country, and you know, I can't really quote for the US, realise actually their own re-elections and the the, the 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 benefit to the country are absolutely interlinked. And if we do not have security and defence of this country, is the most important thing that those politicians can do. And if they're not doing it, then or they don't do it or fail, then quite frankly, everything else is is horrifically irrelevant. So with a Russia on a total war footing, I'm not saying that we should be on a total war footing, but we should certainly be giving the indications and making the preparations to produce a defensive policy and a defense capability that is up to the task of making sure the Russians get no further than they are at the moment and ideally pushing them back to where they were pre-February 2022. Thank you so much, Hamish, for your analysis there. Francis and Dom, just quickly before we move to our final thoughts then, can I ask, obviously everything, I realise everything we've been speaking about in terms of the Grant Schaap speech, everything Hamish has just said, I I feel like to our listeners in Europe that might, that, that will hit differently to how our listeners in the United States might take that news and take that analysis just because of geography, right? Like we're very close, they're a little bit further away. How do you think that when Europeans, Brits, Ukrainians, Germans, French, whatever, talk to Americans about this threat, about what may change in the next year, how do you think we're, I guess my question is, do you think we're communicating that effectively enough? And if not, what needs to change? Hmm, interesting one. Well, I think it's helpful that a few thousand Houthi extremists have rocked up in the last couple of weeks because that brings into sharp focus how the world works, you know, with what is it, 80, between 80 and, 90%, 80 and 90% of world trade going through the Red Sea. I think that was, is that the OS, the OC, who is it, the Organisation for Cooperation and Development? Anyway, some some worthy institution. A hell of a lot of trade goes through the Red Sea. Houthis turn up and suddenly you've got Britain and America taking the hard action, but backed up by a whole a whole host of um, of countries offering diplomatic support and logistics and all the rest of it. Now, why do I say that? It's because that's that's what the world does. And in the absence of, of a global policeman, people keep saying, well, America should do this. And America eventually turned around and said, look, we're not the world, the global policeman. We can't be expected to do everything. You know, who's who's going who's gonna to make that work? I mean, now, is it worth... You know, the the cost of living crisis and you not having a new coffee maker is that is that worth going to war over or engaging in military action? Well, I suppose you can say, well, yes, it is because that's that's how the how the world works. This this interlinked world. No matter how much you want to be um, a, an isolationist, you know, you're really not anymore. The, the the world doesn't work like that. If you want to be isolationist, look at isolation. You're looking at North Korea. Okay, so if you want to be a plugged into the world, then you have to. You have to defend the, 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 the systems of the world. And that at the moment means saying to the Houthis, you can't go firing ballistic missiles at Maersk containers in, in the Red Sea. Now, again, why, why is that important? Because 
the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which essentially set up for hard power defense of Europe and the North Atlantic and the Euro-Atlantic area. Well, it's kind of morphed a bit beyond that. And and in recent years, you could say, um, going back to bombing Serbia in 1999, that that's that's more more one of values and, and the whole RTP thing, responsibility to protect and how the world moves on. So is the is NATO now uh, looked upon as an organization that takes hard military action well outside the geographic scope of the North Atlantic and beyond the traditional foes of Russia and um, and anyone else that might want to attack member states. So you, geography does matter. If you talk to our Baltic and Scandinavian colleagues, they are much more clear-eyed about the threat from Russia and much more clear-eyed about how the whole of society needs to take um, a, a action here, not just the military and not just reservists aligned to the military, but society as well, societal resilience. So they're much more clear-eyed. And, and the further west you go, when you, by the time you get to London you know, and elsewhere, it's it's not quite that that pressing. So, yeah, over the water to um, to, to North America and, and what have you, you can understand why they might take a different take a different view because the impetus isn't there. But actually, the more you look at it, the issues are all the same and we're all connected. And we've got there, there seems to be this void at the moment about, well, who who is going to do this if if. Um, navies of old used to do this kind of thing you'd call it i don't know pejorative terms like colonial policing but there used to be things about keeping the trade routes open that's sort of where navies came from the, the royal navy the british royal navy now with we've got um what have we got we've got six daring class type 45 destroyers absolutely amazing destroyers but there's only six of them and our frigates are currently being replaced by the city class again type 26 global combat ship going to be amazing when they're all in in the mid 2030s but there's going to be eight of those this numbers ain't great fellas if your purpose the purpose of the royal navy for example is to make sure that the bomber the nuclear armed submarines can get out to the north atlantic and wherever else they might be um protect the lanes out to the north atlantic and protect them while they're there if we're now saying well actually look there's there's now an enduring threat to global supply systems for which we need a hard power solution well I don't know, the, the Royal Navy isn't built for that. They'd never do it on their own, of course, do it as part of a coalition, as is happening right now in the Red Sea and, and elsewhere. CTF, what is it, 153, Combined uh, Coalition Task Force 153, based out of Bahrain for the anti-piracy thing in the Horn of Africa. But the point I'm making is it's a much more connected world today, and geography is a is a, um, is a factor to consider, but, it, but it's way down the list in terms of what really impacts me and and us and my, you know, my country, it's, it's things where these these events might be happening thousands of miles away, but they do affect pump prices wherever you are, what you've got on the shelves uh, in the in the shop where you want to go and buy stuff. So it's all connected, whether we like it or not, and that that requires and seems to be requiring a much more hard power solution. It's probably only in the last twenty or thirty years where non-state actors, such as a bunch of a bunch of rebels that would cause chaos if you went on holiday somewhere and got yourself kidnapped. But, you know, a bunch of rebels in, in Yemen, they, they used not to have this capability to fire ballistic missiles and cruise missiles and all the rest of it. OK, the Houthis are backed by Iran, but other groups have got this, cap- this kind of capability now. So the world has, has suddenly become a much smaller place. And you can't say, right, it won't affect us 
because we're thousands of miles away. Geography is is the biggest determinant here. We don't have to take a vote on this. We don't have to get involved. I, I think you do. I think you really do. Now, whether NATO is the answer to that or whether there's some other grouping or whether there's just an acceptance that um, there are going to be hard power responses to essentially, uh, you know, what, this is a, a stopping commercial shipping. People will say, well, why should you be killing people? Why should you be killing people? Because it's, 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 uh, it's just stopping your containers by, by a few weeks. Well, that's, that is the kind of way of the world. And we either, we either don't want that, um, in which case we have to do something about it, or we, or we accept that, that it's not right to, to meet that response with hard power, in which case the world is going to look very, very different very, very quickly. So I think geography is a determinant, but it's, it's way down the list of factors of things that really um, uh, impact the kind of response that, that global leaders are going to come up with. What a fascinating answer. Thank you very much, Tom. Francis Sternley. Well, I agree with all of that. And I think whilst not wanting to come across as the sort of the pessimist in the room, I think also this idea that one often hears articulated by particularly some leadership candidates in the Republican presidential election, this notion that that, that America could remain out of some worst case scenario war, you know, World War Three situation is clearly absurd. I mean, historically, it would just not be conceivable for that to be the case if things really went awry. And so you're not going to get what you want anyway, if things go, um, go sour. I think that's just an important, an obvious point. But this idea that isolationism is actually even conceivable in that kind of worst, say, situation, in perhaps it way it was conceivable maybe in the First World War, but even then America was dragged in. It's just simply not the case in the 21st century. I think the other point I would make is I always feel a little bit uncomfortable when the conversation strays to it purely being a question of self-interest, why a country like America behaves in a certain way. It's a very realist view. And whilst I can totally understand why countries and people need to act rationally i think also when you stray into that territory it becomes very easy to find excuses not to do things and not to act when there are obvious moral outrages and the fact is is that there are obvious black and white examples of moral wars and one of them clearly is being fought in ukraine right now. And if we reduce that to only being a question of self-interest for, say, America or any other European country, then I think that reduces the horrors that the Ukrainians have been forced to endure, not least the war crimes, not least the uh, kidnapped children and the uh, numerous uh, constant attacks on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. Um, But even if one is forced to ignore all of the moral side of things, of course, on the self-interested side, there is all no shortage of reasons as to why America would want to and should be urgently engaged with this war and in supporting, I would argue, the Ukrainians, which is simply, as Don was saying, this point that in this smaller world, any escalation in hostile activity by the West's enemies will inevitably drag America in, whether it likes it or not. And emboldened enemies of the West will go for America because America is seen as being a beacon of democracy and freedom, as it's articulated that view itself. So for as long as freedom is threatened, so will be America. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. America, it cannot stay out of that fight. Well, thank you very much, Dom, Francis and Hamish, for all of your thoughts there. That evolved quite a bit, didn't it? That was really fascinating. Um, let's move to our final thoughts then. Hamish or Dom, would you like to go first? OK, um, Hamish, let, let me go first. Slightly obscure final thought. Um, I take you back to the Obama red line in September 2012, when he said the use of chemical weapons would go beyond the pale and US and its allies would strike as sad. Now, that red line evaporated in August 2013 when Assad dropped about half a ton of uh, nerve agent sarin on a place called Ghouta and killed about 1,500 civilians. Uh, the British government in September 2013 voted to do nothing. The American government short, fair, uh, followed suit shortly thereafter. Now, for the next five years, Assad killed civilians and used chemical weapons around 100 times. It wasn't until the 4th of April 2018 when Assad then dropped sarin again on a place called Khan Shakun that the British and American governments decided to strike Assad's chemical weapons facilities, which they did, and that stopped dead the use of chemical warfare agents. Assad still used some toxic chemical um, agents uh, and then in April 2019, when Assad dropped a load of chlorine on a place called Douma, killed 75 people, mostly children, Britain and America and France then struck uh, the facilities that made these toxic chemicals, and they have finished. Uh, sadly, Assad is still in power. We look at what's the, the Houthi attack and the precision-guided attacks by America uh, and uh, the UK on those facilities. I would say, you know, it's... It's a more straightforward task to attack hard targets with precision-guided uh, munitions. What I mean here is the miss missile launches and the drones. Um, people uh, are rightly questioning these sort of attacks on individuals. Um, 
my personal experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, what's happening in Gaza at the moment, very much more difficult to hit a moving target. But against these targets in in Syria and in Yemen, this can be absolutely key uh, to taking them out of the game. And all I'd say is it's essential that your enemies know that you're going to do it and can do it. And when we look this year towards Ukraine and uh, the uh, support to Ukraine, uh, apart, whatever Grant Chaps has said today, good stuff. But going forward, we and our allies must make Putin absolutely certain that he understands that there are red lines and we will not allow them to evaporate in future. Thank you very much, Hamish de Bretton Corden. Tom Nichols. Yeah, so as Hamish said just there, I was uh, in a place in London this morning with a load of other people and Grant Chaps, Defence Secretary, gave gave a speech. I mean, it was fine. It was all good. It said all the right things. It was just left with the impression that at the end of it, you kind of go, OK, so what are you going to do about it then? Because he never really ex- explained in very clear-eyed terms the, the problem facing the world today. I mean, coming out with comments like... He said, we are no longer post-war, we are now pre-war. I mean, pretty pretty punchy from a defence secretary. He said, we are now in the era, sorry, the, we are at the end of the era of the peace dividend, the so-called peace dividend after the Cold War, when everyone's over here in the West slashed our defence budgets and thought that war was not going to happen again. So, you know, pretty punchy stuff from a British defence secretary. Highlighted the threat. Very clear-eyed about the threat from Russia and the challenges from China and all the, all the rest of it, and then talked about non-state actors and blah blah blah, but didn't say. And so, in response, we are going to increase our defence spending, or we're going to commit to this, or we're going to do that, or we're going to pledge X, Y, and Z. So we're left with the a, a, a sort of uh, a pretty reasonable assessment of the problem, and and not a lot else. So fine as, as far as it goes it's a bit like that phrase you know my the current sort of pet hate of the phrase people say we're going to support ukraine for as long as it takes like for as long as it takes to do what to win to not lose to stay where you are yeah well but i hate that phrase this speech was kind of that phrase um on steroids if you like now in questions i asked him uh a couple a couple of bits and bobs but the one thing i did ask him about he when he was talking about support for ukraine he was talking about how britain has just pledged two and a half billion pounds uh to go on the 2.3 billion from last year and the 2.3 for 2022 so over over seven billion quid um spent and pledged yeah good of which 200 million is going straight on drones uh mostly mostly in, with drone manufacturers in the in the UK. This is the point I keep making about in relation to the US, about our military support for for Ukraine in terms of arms sales for a country like the US and Britain and, and others. Yeah, most of that's going to be spent in your country. So it's not as if it's going, going out somewhere else and not being of any benefit whatsoever. Anyway, so 200 million quid for drones. But I, I asked him what he thought of this plan from Estonia. I t- talked about it very briefly just before Christmas. I was invited to the Estonian embassy when they when they launched this. Estonia has, 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 has crunched the numbers, and it and it uh, so a lot of thoughts gone into it. And they they were saying that if every NATO member pledged a quarter of one percentage point, 0.25 percent of their GDP to Ukraine. And they said over the long term, and I spoke with the ambassador today, and I said, you know, can I can I stick a figure of ten years on that? And he said, yeah, that that seems a reasonable for our argument's sake. So a quarter of a percent of GDP for ten years that would raise at the moment about 120 billion quid 
a year from uh, from from NATO. Now that's 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 enough. That promised for a number of years um, could then be invested long supply chains, you know, long term, long lead items, all that kind of stuff. You could actually really develop a military there. That might be the kind of security guarantee that Ukraine might accept post-war short of NATO Article 5. If you, if This debate about well, what is acceptable to, to Ukraine in security terms, if you start off by saying, and you're not allowed to say Article 5, got to take that out of, out of the equation, you know, what's your answer? Well, something like this might be the answer. Okay, now, within the context of um, the US now and in a potential future uh, Trump presidency, second Trump presidency, if they decided their priorities were elsewhere, let's say, all the US support was withdrawn. Well, the the European members of NATO, if they stuck to that Estonian plan of quarter of a percent of GDP, that will still come up with about $60 billion worth a year. Again, probably enough, to, certainly enough to, to build a, a pretty competent military. So this is, this is a new idea from Estonia. Um, it hasn't really got much airing because it's so new and we all know Christmas and so on and so forth and then the hoot is rocked up. But I was keen to try, uh, because it's a, it's not a kind of wild, off-the-wall idea that you just try and catch a politician out to be a clever journalist. You know, it's actually a pretty sensible plan that's backed up by the numbers. So I, I'm keen for this to gain traction as an argument. And hence, I raised it again today in open forum with the Defence Secretary. What does he think about the, about the Estonian plan? I wasn't expecting him to say... Yeah, I reckon we should do it. Brilliant. I'll go and I'll take that to Rishi Sunak this afternoon. But he he fudged around and, and all the rest of it. And he talked about Britain's, um, you know, what we've pledged for Ukraine. And he said a lot of other people are trying to do the same thing and we're going in the right direction. And he, and he, he was confident that we would, we would end, up, end up in the right place. And then he said, quote, how we do it, there are lots of ways to get there, which is not a kind of ringing endorsement of the Estonian plan. And it doesn't really take it head on which makes me think he's not that keen for it. But I'm, I will continue to ask that question, and I urge everybody, if you can, it's a very short document the Estonians put out just before Christmas. I think it's only about 14 pages. Um, and it, it boils down. You can, there's, the, um, there's the sort of bluffer's guide up front, the uh, executive summary, if you only want to read that bit. But essentially, the argument is, for a quarter of 1% of your GDP for 10 years, um, you, Ukraine can do this. We can support Ukraine to win this war, and then that would have obviously the long-term implications for Russia and China and any you know, authoritarian regimes elsewhere. So I will continue to, to ask that question. I urge everyone else to look into it, and, and if you so wish, ask that question of your of your political leaders wherever you are. But it, it is something that we will talk about um, in future: the Estonian model, the Estonian plan, whatever it's going to be, whatever it's going to be called. But worth looking at a, a valid addition to the argument about what future security apparatus and mechanisms for Ukraine post-war might look like. So, uh, yeah, one one to watch, I think. But today's, today's speech... Thank you very much, Dom and Hamish. Francis Sternley, would you like to finish today? Thanks, David. Well, I agree with Dom's analysis there. I think this is a critical, critical question. It's critical about Europeans' future defence generally, but also on this critical question about what will happen if America were to withdraw and is Europe ready? Really, this is a conversation that we've been having on the pod now for six months that should have been on the agenda much, much earlier, I would argue. But anyway, that's politics for you. Dom mentioned partisan activity earlier and Russia 
is relying, I would argue, on Western countries over time, seeing the territories Russia still occupies as becoming, for all intents and purposes, part of Russian territory, if not legally, then practically as a result of suppression and enforced population movements, etc. Because of the relative lack of information we're able to receive from the occupied territories, what is happening there? can be quite hard to come by in information terms, which is why I recommend a piece by Francis Farrell in the Kiev Independent, someone else known to our listeners, who has written a piece called Inside Occupied Ukraine's Most Effective Resistance Movements. And as he underlines, perhaps counter to the popular conception, resistance in these occupied areas is significant and not just in the forms of assassinations of Russian figures, something we've, of course, reported whenever that happens. But as he writes, however big or small, whether the impact is military or symbolic, the actions of Ukrainians living in Russian occupied territories over the almost two years of full scale war have all worked to one to drive one simple message home that Russia's grip on parts of Ukraine is as weak as it is temporary. The Kiev Independent spoke to three individuals involved in coordinating resistance operations in Ukraine's occupied territories, representatives of well-known movements Yellow Ribbon and Atesh, as well as a Ukrainian special forces soldier specialising in maintaining a personal network of informants in Donetsk Oblast. According to those helping them to resist, the will of Ukrainians under occupation to be liberated has not in any way faded and neither have their resistance operations. Now, interestingly, Francis in the piece goes into quite a bit of detail about how these operations are run. He says people often imagine partisan movements as something out of a World War II film. But it's really nothing like that, because if they catch one person, then everyone is compromised. And he goes into more details about the digital technology that is deployed. I mean, obviously, one has to treat all reports of this kind of activity with a degree of um, if not scepticism, just being slightly cautious. I mean, the fact when people are able to talk and willing to talk about these things, it may be they've moved on how they operate because they don't want to be compromised. It may be that things are slightly out of date, as it were. But nonetheless, I think what's so interesting about this piece is that it looks into subjects that really are not very widely reported on. To quote the piece, these groups engage in a plethora of resistance activity from the kind of intelligence gathering similar to that carried out by various informants previously reported on to information campaigns to assorted acts of direct partisan action. Notably, much of Atesh's work attempts to directly engage Russians themselves, both military and civilian, with active operations in cities deep inside the Russian Federation. Now, if that is true, and it's not just, say, a piece of disinformation that Ukraine is trying to put out there amongst journalists, then that would perhaps partly explain some of the explosions and apparent partisan activity that we've reported on taking place in Russia behind the lines, as it were. The biggest threat now, Francis says in the piece, is that both the FSB and Interior Ministry, often in competition with each other, have really begun hunting people. They are looking to arrest more and more people, some on terrorism charges, some for extremism and some for discreditation of the army. Now, obviously, one always has to be, as I say, cautious when looking at this kind of material. But I find this topic extremely interesting and very, very important. And I'm in conversations with several people about doing more on the podcast on the subject of resistance in occupied areas. For imagine if 
we entirely ignored the subject of resistance, say, from our narrative of the Second World War. It would paint a very, very incomplete picture of that conflict indeed. Yet to some degree, I'd argue that is what the West is doing with regard to Ukraine. So I welcome very much people getting in touch on this issue. It's one that we'd like to cover in more detail. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 